Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Joined here uh, by a shaman musician and a healer in his own right in many ways, David Dog Grisman. Welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Nice to be here with you, Jake. I want to be clear about this. Your first, uh, as a recorder, as somebody who re recorded music and, and actually produced an album, was 1963. This was with Frank Wakefield. And Red Allen. And Red Allen. Or actually Red Allen, Frank Wakefield, and the Kentuckians. Q Studios. Can you just break down? <laughs> like, you were Folkways, not... Folkways, yeah. FA 2408. How did it come about? And why are you, were you so passionate? Of, I guess here what I'm trying to say is this. You were in a really prolific jug band. You didn't have to leave New York City to see great music. You, you oh, went... Oh, well, yeah. I was interested in bluegrass music. And, Obsessed. And you really had to leave New York City to hear bluegrass music uh, in 1960, 61, 62. So I made a lot of pilgrimages down to Baltimore, Washington area, Virginia. Now there were bluegrass shows at, in Sunset Park and West Grove, Pennsylvania and uh, uh, New River Ranch in Rising Sun, Maryland. Yeah, the first... Uh, First bluegrass show like that I saw, Bill, uh, Ralph Rensler called me up one morning, was my neighbor, friend, mentor. Uh, He's looking down right now. He's yeah. smiling, man. And uh, he called me up one Sunday morning, August of 1961, and said, hey, I'm going down to Maryland to hear Bill Monroe and the bluegrass boys who want to come. So obviously I went. And uh, Wakefield blew your mind. Well, Wakefield, yeah. And actually, actually that, was the best Frank, thing that, that was the best thing that could have happened to you because you thought everybody well, played I went that. to hear Bill, Bill Monroe, and Frank Wakefield was in the opening, you know, there were two or three, or one or two other bands, and uh, Frank Wakefield was the mandolin player in, the, uh, in a band called Frankie Short, Marvin Howell, and the Franklin County Boys. And I never heard of Frank Wakefield or much else, but... Uh, and, that, and then he and Bill Monroe played duets backstage, uh, and that sort of really blew my mind. But yeah, I did get the mistaken impression that, because Frank Wakefield in 1961 was, sounded about as close to Bill Monroe as anybody could. I got the mistaken idea that they all sounded like that. I was driving over here today from Los Angeles and I was thinking to myself, you know, Sebastian, John Sebastian was on the Chitlin circuit for a minute, the black Chitlin circuit. Yeah, right. And, and I'm thinking like Jethro Burns, Vassar, Wake, was that the white Chitlin circuit? I mean, was there a, a white sort of hip circuit? Not, you know, Grand Old Opry was the centerpiece, but I, you know, I'm trying to get at the idea. What, well, well, I came. Richard in, Green was. I, I really came into it through folk music, the the folk music scare of the early sixties. You know, <laughs> and uh, I dig. So there wasn't really a circuit. There was just I was part of a a, a group of young uh, kind of uh, urban misfit teenagers who didn't particularly like Leslie Gore or what was happening to uh, pop music or rock and roll in the late 50s, early 60s, you know, because there was all this really cool music that happened 
in the mid fifties, you know, with Chuck Berry and Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and uh, Frankie Lyman and just I know there's just so much cool music. It was burning. I used to listen Chuck to Barry, the, yeah. the top fifty. I'd come home from school and they'd be they play for three hours the top fifty records and I mean before you even got to fifteen you'd hear all kinds of great stuff. Of course it probably got a little worse once you got near the top but um, and then all of a sudden that music I mean Buddy Holly you know it kind of evaporated for various reasons. You know, Elvis went in the army. Chuck Berry went to, went to jail. Little Richard found God. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Buddy Holly got killed. Right. And all of a sudden, Frankie Lyman OD'd. Wow. And it was, you know, it was wow. pretty vapid, heavy. You know, in the, around that time. And, and but the Kingston Trio caught my ear with. Um, Tom Dooley and the Five String Banjo, and I then I discovered Pete Seeger. Went to see Pete Seeger at Carnegie Hall in 1959, and met a couple of uh, friends in high school, junior high school, that were into this folk music. And there was that FM radio at my friend Jack Scott's house, and a guy named Oscar Brand had a weekly show yeah. with a band called the Shanty Boys, which included a five-string banjo player named Roger Sprung, who played three-finger Scruggs style. And Jack Scott kept telling us about this kind of music called bluegrass. And one day, he, we used to go into New York City, the number 30 bus, and uh, mm -hmm. we'd go to Sam Goody's record store, and you, you could find Folkways records there, and all kinds of things you couldn't get in Passaic, New Jersey. and. Uh, he came home with a record called Mountain Music Bluegrass Style. And he called uh, Fred Weiss and myself, the other two friends. We had to go over and hear this. And he had already picked out the first track he was going to play, which wasn't the first track in the album. But he put the needle down on White House Blues by Earl Taylor and the Stony Mountain Boys. And that changed my life. <laughs> the, going back to the... Uh... The Wakefield and uh, Red Allen session. That, oh yeah. Yeah, uh, I think Red was like, "Yo, we got, you know, we got ten tunes," and you're like, "We need well, like." Well, no, no, no. What happened was, um, I guess, really, what I wanted you to talk about is the tunes yeah. that you added that wound up either right. getting it or yeah, coming. Yeah. Like, how did you Red do Allen that as, as a bird? You was maiden voyage for you. Uh, well, I, you know, I thought uh, Frank Wakefield was writing some very interesting mandolin instrumentals like New Camptown Races, and he had one called Catnip, and I thought it was important to include some of that on this album. I mean, Red, Red Allen had sold Mo Ash a tape of 10 songs, and, you know, Folkways Records around that time had like 27 songs. Absolutely. So, you know, so f from that standpoint, I, I didn't think they had enough to, I thought, you know, Folkways adherents are going to complain if they get this album and it's got 10 songs on A measly it. 10 songs. Yeah, so anyhow, I, I mostly I, I, and you know, some, about half that material that w was not traditional, I was like the, uh, the part of bluegrass that was derived from older music and as opposed to like bluegrass uh, arrangements of country, popular country music of the time. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. 
<clears throat> but no, I dig. So I suggested, uh, you know, uh, Peter Siegel and I, my friend Peter Siegel, we had made a um, pilgrimage down to uh, that area. We heard, we heard about this band, Red Allen and Frank Wakefield. And I just knew that Frank Wakefield was a great mandolin player. And I, I uh, took the Trailways bus down there with my mandolin and my wall and sack tape machine and walked into this bar that was probably about the size of this dressing room. <clears throat> as soon as I walked in, there was Frank Wayfield and Red Allen sitting at a table. It was like a, out of a movie, you know. They were on a break. And I, you know, just went up to him and uh, introduced myself. <laughs> so I, was, I was here to, to take you boys to Carnegie Hall, you know. Yeah, no. Uh, you went home with Wake that night. Yeah, he invited me. He you know, I was a crazy teenager. Just, you know, and then you recorded some stuff when his baby was screaming in the next Yeah, day. well, Peter Siegel came down a day or two later, and we, uh, Red Allen invited us, or I guess we went over to Frank's house. We asked if we could make a tape of those guys singing traditional material. And they Very cool. Agreed to do that and in Frank's kitchen. And uh, we just had a wall sack tape machine and a uh, Electra Voice microphone and recorded about, I don't know, 30 songs in one sitting, you know. That became my Bible, sort of. I learned every mandolin solo. But then, uh, uh, we, we, we were in a position, uh, I was uh, working part-time, I was a student at NYU, and I had part-time employment working for Israel G. Young, who ran an establishment on McDougal Street called the Folklore Center. And uh, he, every year there was a Hootenanny at Carnegie Hall concert, where they have a bunch of different, often obscure folk acts, you know, they have a couple of mainstream... Uh, obscure meaning like uh, not local and, and from, yeah, from more yeah, like, like narrow, uh, yeah. Oh, I don't know. Uh, you have to getting really obscure now. I mean, you're yeah, there'd going... be people like Dave Van Ronk and 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 actually, uh, we had uh, formed this even dozen joke band, and we were invited. And I suggested Red Allen and Frank Wakefield, their bluegrass band. And so I actually got them a gig at Carnegie Hall, and then they it was a Sunday night, and after the concert. I got them an audition at Gertie's Folk City. After they played Carnegie Hall, they went and drove down to the village and played a, a set at Gertie's Folk City and got a two-week gig. And when they came up to play that gig, they were staying at my mom's house in New Jersey, and <clears throat> that was when uh, Red Allen uh, played me this tape that he had made a deal for. So I suggested they had material. He says, well, you, you talk to Mr. Ash. And I just called up Mo Ash out of the blue. He didn't know me from Adam and he... Really? Yeah. He gave you Q Studios on, I mean, on a Sunday night, you know? He, he gave us uh, a budget for three hours at Q Studios in New York, in Manhattan somewhere. And Peter Siegel and I, uh, you know, if you want to know what a producer does, it, 
the session was for something like 7 or 8 p.m. And around 1 in the afternoon, I decided to call these guys and make sure they were heading up to New York City. And what are you doing? They were, they were watching the Redskins football game, you know, so... Said you got to get up here and do this session. So let me let me. Uh, and then I got Bill Keith, my friend Bill Keith, to play. Um, I mean, uh, and that was uh, uh, he was already with Monroe at that point. Uh, that was before he was with Bill Monroe. Well, no, let's see. No, it was '63. It was while he was with Bill Monroe. But he had played with Red before that, and uh, we were friends. And I thought he'd be great to play these Frank Wakefield instrumentals and. My friend Fred Wise played bass. He was a good bass player. Two days ago, I did this exact same thing with uh, Pete Sears, and I find oh, it yeah? really interesting that that was the session that you and Jerry reconnected on. That's true. And although we didn't, uh, yeah, it was overdubs. Sure, it really, but it, yeah. but but I want you to. Yeah. This is really important because. Um, whatever was done back in, with in, Olden in the Way and that kind of stuff, I just want you to talk about how that, how meaningful that was for you to reconnect because of not just being treated with respect and being treated fairly by Jerry, but then the fact that he basically made it as an excuse for you guys to play music again. Well, no, that wasn't, no, that was just, that came a little later. Okay. Yeah. It was just good to, I mean, hey, uh, I had built up some, uh, you know, it's just water over the bridge, you know. Jerry and I hadn't talked to each other in, uh, I don't know what year that was, do you? The Sears record was like 90, 91, but I mean, it probably was around 89, 90. Yeah, it was, yeah. 80, it was 89, or, yeah. Uh, yeah, we hadn't, uh, I don't think we spoke to each other for about 12 or 13 years. It just wasn't any overt hostility or anything. It just, he was in his world and I was in mine. Unfortunately, as producer of what I was told was the biggest selling bluegrass record of all time up until then, I hadn't gotten a dime except initial, some initial money. And, and these guys were selling out Madison Square Garden and I was driving around the 64 broken down Chevy. Mm -hmm. Uh, and 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 the movie, but, and the you movie, know, yeah, was, the movie was, was that was yeah. cool. It was, they were just like any other rip-off record company, you know. But I thought, uh -huh. you know, uh, and you moved on. I mean, you just kept burning your own. I path. was doing my thing. He was doing his, and we. I but you know, it was kind of weird because we were pretty good friends, and I just hadn't heard from him. And I think I had written him a letter at one point, which I don't know. You know, I think he was in kind of a. I can't say, you know, I just wasn't there, and he wasn't where, but yeah, we ran into each other and had a good talk, and uh... But one day you went to the mailbox, and Yeah. Came. Well, I've told you all this already. I guess, the, I just would yeah. like you to talk about well, how, I, I how meaningful think, that was for you, well, just... Well, you know, it, it's all great, I mean, Jerry and I got to, together, and you know, it's... Yeah, it was it was meaningful in a professional way because it was gave my career a big boost. But in a personal way, it was uh, very good to have you know become friends. Again. Because you know, like Peter Rowan called the Grateful Dead the Phantom Ship. Every time they needed the money, they'd come back off the coast. And the point is that Jerry was in a democracy. He had no, he couldn't. His... Well, Jerry was doing what he 
Uh, yeah, I mean, he he was a complicated man. I'm just glad Pete Sears made the record so you guys could yeah. could, could reconnect. And I and the music to me, my yeah, generation. Yeah, I mean, he you know we he he recommended that I get a, a grant or an award for the Grateful Dead. The Rex Foundation. Yeah, and uh, I called him up to thank him, and we made it a date to get together to play. And, he walked in and said, uh, you know, we should make a record because it'll give us an excuse to get together. So, great, I just built a studio in my basement, pal, come on down. And yeah, so, yeah, that was a great, a great time and uh, I'm glad we made that connection. How do you, uh... <clears throat> What gets you off the most on the bandstand today? I mean, you asked today, you asked, will there be people coming to both sets? And, you know, to me, like, I just, we, we, we kind of, it's not genre specific, it's all music, like Duke said, but I feel like we're in a formula trip today, uh, more so than ever, especially in, you know. Well, I like to be in a relaxed, I like to, I like really working on music rather than, you know, putting it on display. Can you go deep? Can you go deeper? So I mean, uh, but that being said, this is the way we earn our living, and, and so I like it. I just like it when the music is good and and, and the audience likes it, which they usually do anyway. But I I just like, uh, you know, I mean, if it's this band, it, it you know, it's uh, you know, you're always striving for that. You know, it's like you're in search of the miraculous to quote uh, Gurdjieff, you know, uh, or Ospensky, I guess that's... It's, out, it's out of my bag, but I mean that... Yeah, so I mean, it, you just, know, you're yeah. just, uh, I mean, the kind of music, you know, you're just <clears throat> looking, it's an, an elusive search for some mm. kind of perfection, and, and beyond that, it's music is a deep form of communication. And, um, you know, I enjoy writing tunes and, and hearing them uh, develop. And I like to, and I'm trying to stay <laughs> in the game, you know, I'm getting old and uh, a lot of this is kind of physical. But basically, I, I like playing in the living room or the hotel. I like just working on stuff. and. But I, but I also like an audience. I enjoy playing just with you there. Yeah. Getting off because and that. In yeah, a way, I was getting way on. Way is was better than audience. You can't can't really see how much any individual member of the audience might be enjoying it or receiving it. You know, it's obviously uh, you know a performance or uh, an exchange of. You know, it's, I mean, you, you mentioned you, you'd like to outlaw applause, but, you know, that's kind of, <laughs> I mean. Well, no, this is, the, this is the thing we've been talking. I don't like yeah. mindless applause, but I, I like appreciation. But, you know, I mean, we're. we're to it me, it's a, really... music is, a, you know this better than anybody, it's, it's vibrational. So I don't know why we've been trained as as a culture to sit and applaud as opposed to let the body dance. I don't think we've been trained. I think it's a I think people I think the listeners want to hmm. uh, 
I think they, they want to express something back. I don't think it's, uh, I mean, who trains? Yeah, maybe certain aspects. I don't know. I never thought about that. Power of Power is playing here in two weeks. That's a sit-down band. That's a dance band. So all, I mean, in different places, you know, like in Jap Japan, they don't hoop and holler. I don't get around that. Yeah, I can only, uh, only I mean, I'm, you know, like, yeah, I, I guess the idea is final thought and then I'll let you bounce. It's, uh, it's, it's always good to, to, to talk with you. Is, yeah. No, I'm just more into like what's happening. No, you're, you're, you're absorbed you know? in the, you're, the, you're delivering. I mean, it. like, you know, I love Jerry. I love, I don't really, never was into the Grateful Dead too much. People come up to me in the airport and say, oh, I'm a big deadhead. And I, I say, I'm sorry. But I want you. I want, I want you to. Next time that happens, I want you to think about something. I just turned forty, so my generation, the Grateful Dead in the nineteen nineties was not an appealing. I never saw him once, but yeah. it was not Jerry. What the best music he made was with you in that decade. So people, the Dead was still going on at that time, but it was really not the, that. That was to me the music you guys made was about love, and that's really my final question to you. Is, well, it was an appreciate. I mean, we just were playing stuff that we always enjoyed. Hearing, you know, we didn't really uh, write anything new. We revisited or visited all these areas that we had, had been part of our musical upbringing, or you know, all the stuff we dug about music when we were learning to play. We just that was our common. We just our common repertoire. You know, we, those areas, bluegrass. Uh, uh, traditional, very traditional music. The new Lost City Records. Uh, A.L. Lloyd and Ewan McCall. I mean, we, he, we were into some similarly obscure, you know, we both had a lot of the same obscure records, like exactly. Sea Shanties by uh, A.L. Lloyd. I'm going to go dig know. for that now. Yeah, there were two of them that I had. Uh, one was called Blow Boys Blow, and the other one was Thar She Blows. And actually, Ralph Rensler played mandolin on The Handsome Cabin Boy. Uh, no, it's great stuff, and you know, he's, usually we'd have... Uh, but, but it's like, you're like, I'm not part of the Grateful Dead. You know, that's, it's kind no, of... No, I'm not, I'm not saying It's a Garcia Grisman, it's a Garcia Grisman bond, you know? Good. Well, that, that's yeah. how I look at it, I'm just saying it was... The well, mo you know, we, that was the closest we got to touch an inspired. You no, know, it's probably I owe my career to Jerry, probably because uh, he was popular, real popular. He didn't really understand it either. He <clears throat> and he didn't really. That was the most beautiful thing he about. He didn't it. really want it necessarily, you know. Uh, and he was, like you say, a very democratic guy. That band was, you know, uh, democratic. To a fault. I mean, <clears throat> but it was like a family, and I realized it was a cultural experience for people. I mean, they took LSD and looked up, and there were the Grateful Dead. It's pretty tight. How, how, how do you, um, I just want you to talk to cats about focusing less on chops and more on feel. And, and, and at a point in your career, even, I mean, I'm even talking like, I know you. I mean, the alto saxophone. I mean, you bought one of those. And I'm just trying to figure <coughs> out if you could talk about a time in your career when you, when it really, you became uh, enlightened to the fact that it was all about feel. Well, 
I, it's funny. I mean, chops. I don't. I don't really. I, I have limited chops. Let's say I, I, I have certain strengths and certain weaknesses. And I mean, if some musicians don't seem to have weaknesses, um, but I'm not one of. You know, I, I practice my chops. I yeah. Mean, musical, composing, just you know, difficult passages. I think it's important to especially now at this age to you know keep working on that but <clears throat> that's that's what you have to hopefully express something uh, in your when you practice that has some kind of meaning <laughs> absolutely and, and part of that is not repeating any ideas in any sequence i mean do you do you work i mean it just flows out of you it's kind of like well, just, I, you're you kind know, of like a conduit you, you know? can recognize me you know it's just like you know, improvisation. I always, I always had kind of a quarrel with improvis the idea of improvisation because, you know, music's a language, and we learn uh, to speak that language. You know, we learn the language, and then we speak in it. And it's just like um, everybody. It's like we're improvising now. You're. You know, you don't have a list. Of, well, maybe you do, but you're, it's a you're sketch. Having a, it's a sketch. conversation, you could go. We could start talking about chili rellenos if we want. Now I'm hungry. Uh, yeah, uh, sounds good. Uh, <laughs> and but still, you know, you, you know, you could tell Earl Scruggs from Eddie Peabody, and you can tell uh, Charlie Parker from. Uh, you know, Lawrence Welk, uh, yep. so, or John Coltrane from Ben Webster. I mean, if you get into it a little bit and, um, you can tell Willie Nelson from Ralph Stanley. And, uh, so. And your individuality comes out with your heart, but when you feel it, when you begin to really yeah. feel. What I'm saying is it's, you know, I'm not really pulling ideas out of thin air I'm you know I have developed a certain vocabulary and now I'm speaking in it and you know I it's just like anybody it's like I mean the kind of you know classical music you know is written out you know by and large every note but it's still a lot of room for interpretation but at least you know the notes the orchestration, whatever it is a lot of it is accounted for. Whereas the kind of music I I've been playing is like parts of it are composed and parts of it are kind of open. But the open parts, I mean, to me, it's all it's all composition. Uh, I mean, if somebody's playing a solo, they're going to compose something to play either relative to this melody or that chord progression or something, but they've done it before. Right. Use this phrase, that note, this lick, uh, that voicing. They've used it a thousand times before, you know. You listen to Bill Evans and it's still Bill Evans. It's not, uh, it's not Art Tatum, you know. So, uh, and everybody has to, you know, to just uh, be articulate on a musical instrument requires a certain amount of study or talent or knowledge or 
you know, so that you have to have. And you have to have, ready a, to and, go. You, and, you, and you have, and to, have to have a conversation. I think that that's yeah, what I'm looking forward to most tonight is just. So you have to know to pronounce your words correctly if you're going to say something. It's like you have to make those notes come out how you, you know, uh, in the proper sequence and at the proper time. With tone, there's a million things to consider, you know, but a lot of it is chops. And I mean chops of just changing your strings and tuning your acts. And what were the this, strings you bought after you got the lesson in Evansville? Black. Oh, Black Diamond, yeah. Who gave you that lesson? Jethro Burns, yeah. Now, okay, the two albums, <clears throat> I want people to listen to this. The two albums, one's about not for squares, and then there's another one. Oh, that, it ain't necessarily square. It ain't necessarily square. And you're talking, those are the jazziest? Well, uh, and the other one is... Uh, I should know it too. Uh, straight ahead. Uh, oh, oh, uh, um, it's playing all, it straight. Playing it straight. It's all jazz yeah. standards, right? Yeah. There are nope. two of them. Yeah. Is there anyone else that had the jazz inflection? Other, I mean, I know he was. Well, in, there, yeah, Tiny Moore. You know, it was a guy named Paul Buskirk. Oh boy. Uh, Going deep into the well oh, right now. He's from Texas. Yeah. I mean, um, jazz inflection. But yeah. you know, Jethro was probably the most prolific and exposed even though they they were a comedy team that's why they call that playing it straight I mean they're playing jazz you don't normally think of jazz as being straight but relative to uh, you know playing uh, doing um, parodies of popular songs uh, uh, turning we're the boys out. from Camp Cucamonga <laughs> you know. um, no they you know it, it it was hard to make a living as a pure mandolin player, you know. Even Bill Monroe, he was a singer, song, you know. He, hey, and you still, it's you, you have to do other things. They wanted you for colors, right? In the yeah, studio, right? Yeah. Dog, thank you, man, for spending hey, time. It's always Jake, good to it's see a you, pleasure. man. Love Keep always. Keep up the good work. I'm not going to tell you how to do your craft, man. Not you're going to have to figure that out for yeah, yourself. Yeah, Dave Weckle, if but, you're listening you know, just in. Just remember, you make your own rules, and then you break your own rules. Love always, everybody. Okay. <laughs> All right. Have a good gig. Peace. Bye.